So I want to invite you to turn to Psalm 13. It's printed for you in your bulletin, or if you have your Bible with you, to turn there. Psalm 13, this is God's Word, good, beautiful, and true. For the director of music, the Psalm of David. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise. For he has been good to me. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. That in it we catch a glimpse of who you are and who we are in you. And I thank you specifically for the Psalms. That in them we find the reality of what it is to live in this broken world. And we discover that those negative emotions are not closed off from you. They're not something that we need to get through and then come to you. But we find you with us in it. We find you even giving us words to guide us within it. And we find them pointing to Jesus. So I pray in this moment, as we stare into the treasures of your word, that you would move by your Holy Spirit to open the eyes of our hearts to see the glory and beauty of our Lord. And the good news that he brings to us. I pray all that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Asking questions is something that is very basic to what it means to be us. Human beings. We ask questions. Think about it. How many questions do you think you ask in a day? I'm begging this more than you realize. What time are you going to get home to? How was your weekend? What do you want for dinner? Did you get that email? I read a study a couple of years ago. That estimated the average number of questions that a five-year-old asks in a day. Well, just get a number in your head because you're not going to be close. The average number of questions that a five-year-old asks in a day is 390. 390. If you've ever been a teacher or a coach or a parent, you just felt that in your bones. 390 questions. But we just don't ask ordinary questions like, what are we having for dinner or where are we going, you know, which grocery store are we going to? We ask big questions, especially when something is profoundly wrong. When we find ourselves in deep anxiety, when we find ourselves under pressure, we ask, is God there? Does he care? Where is God in my pain? When we see yet another school shoot, when we hear of another kid getting a cancer diagnosis, when we hear of another leader being exposed for abusing people under his care, we cry out, how long? How long, Lord, until you make this right? So what I want to do this morning is take a, some moments to look at the words of Psalm 13 and learn what it means for us to be people who take seriously our pain and anxiety, don't sweep it away, and people who take seriously the depth of God's love and commitment us. So we're going to start here in this uh, uh, first section. I've broken it up like I always do. Um, the questions of faith. The questions of faith. We don't know all the circumstances behind Psalm 13. 
So you might you just read through, and, and we don't have an answer to who the enemy is that David is wrestling with. This was written by King David about a thousand years before the time of Jesus, ancestor who wrote uh, so so many psalms, um, and this is one of them. And he had a number of times in his life where he went through significant struggles. Some of those brought on himself by himself. Um, but we don't know the circumstances of Psalm 13. But something has shaken David to the absolute core. And so that's why this psalm, you may have noticed, starts with six straight questions. They are rapid fire. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I wrestle with my thoughts? All of these questions are a huge, God, what is going on? What is going on? The thing I've built my life on, the foundations that I walk on every day, it feels like they've shaken, and I cannot get my bearings. And as you see, he feels like he's attacked from the inside. So he's talking about sorrow in his heart and wrestling with his thoughts. He's talking about being attacked from other people. He talks about an enemy that's after him, a foe that's after him. These are not questions that come from a place of calm. David here is not in, you know, <laughs> it's not like he had a quiet time and he's meditating. He's no, these are deep. This is a deep anxiety showing itself in sadness and even rage. And it's uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable. I want you to imagine like you're sitting across from David. And he's going through it, and you're sitting there with him, and you want to support him. And then all of a sudden, David's starting to sound like he's going off the deep end. You're like, you're David. You're, you're the king. And so, I don't know. I don't know if this happened within you, but when, when I read Psalm 13, especially something that's going well in my life, and I'm not having a tough time, I almost feel like I want to answer these questions. Like I've got a theological answer, and I'm going to give it to David. Or I'm thinking, like, how dare you, David? Who do you think you are? You're a scoundrel. I know your whole story. How dare you ask these questions? I think, at least in my case, I can be uncomfortable with these kinds of questions because somewhere inside of me, I think that if you ask these kinds of questions, you're showing a lack of faith. But that's not true. Somewhere inside of me, the uncomfortableness is a thought that it, these questions are almost too big. They're too dangerous. They're a path. If I go down that path, then I don't know where it will lead. But that's not true. The truth is, is these kinds of questions in a world like ours, where so much is wrong and still left to be renewed and redeemed by Jesus, these kinds of questions are not evidence of a lack of faith. These are the questions of faith. This is what faith looks like when things are wrong. These questions are not too big. They're not too scary. They're not too dangerous. When we've been hurt, we should be sad. We should be angry. God doesn't ask us to just come to him when we feel happy. And joyful. God's not the friend that only comes around when everything's going well and, you know, you're, uh, you're a delight to be around. He's not that fair-weather friend. No, he wants us to come with all of who we are. 
to come to him with our sadness and anger, to even direct those things to him, to be angry in the right direction, in a sense. Because he's not afraid of our questions, he's not afraid of our pain, and it means that we don't have to be either. If God's not afraid of our questions, if God's not afraid of our sadness and our anger, God's not afraid of us in the absolute depth of our depth of our anxiety and pain, then we don't have to be afraid of that either. There may be things inside of you or things that have happened to you and you feel like if I allow myself to go there, if I allow myself to really get sad or angry about this, then my faith is going to topple like a Jenga top. But that's to forget what faith is. Faith is not something you build. Faith is not something you do. Faith at its core is a relational term. Faith is what it means for us to be held and kept by God, to receive and to rest in God's love for us. Which in a world like ours will not only involve joy, it will also involve anger and sadness. It will involve the entire range of our emotional lives. Again, faith is not something we do. Faith is not something we build. Faith is the term that describes us being held and cared for by God. Faith will involve our emotions, absolutely, but it's not primarily defined by our emotions. When we speak of faith, it, by definition, it is outward focused. It is not an inward personal characteristic. To speak of faith is to say a lot more about God than it is to say about us. Here's what I mean. It's like we're babies. It's like, and, and I hope you're not offended by me hitting that point every week. But scripture hits that point every week. All the time. It is like we are babies. And maybe you've got a resume you're proud of. But when we come to Jesus, when God finds us, it is like we were babies being held by our loving dad. And sometimes, the kid, if you've ever held a baby, you know sometimes the baby is content and it naps. The baby's happy in, in its dad's arms. Sometimes that baby's being tickled or laughing and he's happy and he's flailing, but it's great. Sometimes that baby is hungry or angry, and then the arms are flailing. And the baby might even be trying to squirm to get out. But what is the deciding factor, no matter if that baby is content or hungry and angry or, or happy and joyful? The deciding factor is the hold of the dad on his baby. That's what faith is when we talk about Friends, what I'm saying here is when life gets tough, we can feel the freedom of babies who know that our Father has us. And that there's absolutely nothing we can do to make our dad love us anymore or any less. And we don't have to be afraid of the questions when they come. We can ask them. We can scream them. We can bring them to God. They are not a danger to your faith. They are what faith looks like under pressure. So... Questions of faith. That leads us to our next section, the, the requests of faith. You may have noticed David fires those rapid-fire questions, six of them in two verses, and then he turns to requests, or maybe even a demand. Again, you, 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 I feel a little bit of like, David, what, 
what are you doing, man? Psalm 13 is what is called a psalm of lament. I mentioned that earlier. Lament's a fancy-sounding word that has a basic meaning. of a, 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 a lament is a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. Lamenting is not despair. Despair is complaint without hope. Lamenting is complaining, but complaining in the right direction, if that makes sense. One of the things that makes questions of faith what they are is that they do not stop with questions. They lead to requests. Questions of faith are naturally followed by requests because they are questions directed to the one who has told us that we can come to him with anything. And so we don't have to remain just in the questions. Our God's a personal God. So we can come to him with, with, with the negative emotions. We can ask the hard questions and not be afraid of them. And we can even request that he act in his love because he's shown us he loves us and that he acts in his love for us. And so verse 3 begins a demand by David. He says, look on me and answer. Look on me, God, and answer. David has felt that God's face has turned away from him, and so he, tell, he asks God. He, in fact, he almost tells God to turn his face toward him with an answer. And this request of desperation, it, you know, David even says it here, and he's not being overly dramatic. David feels like if God does not turn to him, that he will die. He will be overcome by whatever enemy has led him to this place of anxiety and distress. I think here we see that we do not have to pretend that our desperation, when we feel it, is any less than it actually is. We don't have to put a face on it like difficult circumstances that have led us to ask these questions of faith aren't that difficult. To say it a different way, God does not ask us to minimize our pain to maximize his glory. That's not how it works. We don't have to wait until things calm down to be uncomfortable. We don't have to calm ourselves down. We can come screaming and crying like a small child again and run straight into the arms of our Father. He doesn't ask you to wipe your eyes before you approach Him. He doesn't ask you to pretend. Now, David could have rationalized the difficulty of what he was going through. And he could have tried to explain it away or squash it down. I mean, he probably knew better than me the theological answers he could give himself to these questions. David could have thought, look, I'm, you know, I'm not feeling great right now, but I'm King David. I got a lot of people looking at me. I'm King. I, I can't come to God like a complaining child. I should fix my attitude before I come to him. I have to set an example. I have to be strong. That's not how it works. Think of this. The very first thing, uh, even before verse 1, you may have noticed it. It says, Psalm 13, for the director of music, a psalm of David. You know what that means? It means David wrote this psalm, and he handed it to whoever the director of music was for Israel's worship, for it to become part of the people's worship. So his desperation... Maybe uh, kind of the ugly side David maybe wouldn't want. This is, you know, you run into private cry. <laughs> you scream into a pillow when you're angry so everybody in the neighborhood won't hear you scream. <laughs> or, you know, whatever. 
But David writes this down and he hands it to the director of music because he understands that what God's people need is not a king, and he's a flawed king, who is standoffish and cannot express or understand the depth of emotion. Not at all. If David was trying to make a name for himself or build himself up as something big, he certainly would have painted himself in a different light. And if you know the story of David, there were times when he forgot all of this. And those were the times when his life turned into absolute chaos. But here, David gets it right. David understands is this what, that this is what faith does. This is how faith responds to difficulty. It is a freedom in our pain to come to God, know that he holds us, and we can dare to... <laughs> Uh, make requests that even sound like demands. Now, at the beginning of my sermon, I talked about the number of questions a child asks in a day, and we all kind of chuckled. 390 is a lot. Why? I think we laugh at that because we think, of course, a kid asks 390 questions a day. They grow out of that. They learn better. They learn better than ask so many questions. Um, but David begins this psalm with a long stream of questions and then demands. It's a lot like a kid talking to a loving father. Maybe we should, what I'm saying is maybe we shouldn't write the kids off so quickly. Maybe they know something that we mature adults with all of our experience and the resume we might carry around, at least in our head. Maybe they know something we've forgotten. That we come into this kingdom that Jesus brings like a child or not at all. We come with nothing in our hands or we do not come to Jesus at all. Part of what he means is that learning to see God as our father means learning to see God as a father who can take our questions and hear our demands, who can take our anger and our sadness and hear us that we do not have to better ourselves or whip ourselves into shape, that we can come to him right away with our questions and with our It's not because we've earned a spot, but because he has made a place for us with him. And that's what David mentions in the last two verses, the last section here, the answer of faith. It may feel like if you were reading through and you notice, it hits those six questions, the demands happen, and then... You can almost feel like the tone shifts pretty dramatically in verses 5 and 6, right? That whatever was bothering David in verses 1 through 4 has maybe resolved itself, and then he went back and he added the last two verses to kind of be a nice bookend at the end of the, the psalm. That God's fixed whatever it was, and now David can praise God. But that's not what's going on. The guy in verses 5 and 6 is the exact same guy in the exact same situation as the guy in verses 1 through 4. David, in the midst of his sorrow and his pain and his anxiety, still under pressure, is able to declare the unfailing love and salvation of God. He is declaring God's goodness through tears and sobs. He is declaring it while still angry, while still sad. The experience of faith in a world like ours means sometimes letting two things stand beside each other and saying, yep. 
the experience is sometimes we say God is good and this right here stinks. And not feeling the need, wanting to resolve that, of course. But sometimes it means letting them stand beside each other and believing a better hope than the situation may appear to show you. It may mean waiting. But it will not mean waiting alone. It will not mean waiting without hope. We are carried at moments like these by God's grace. And he has assured us that no matter what it, you know, which pathway the road takes us, it will end with him making all things new. That whatever comes next for any of us, whatever uh, uh, deep valleys we walk through, whatever tall mountaintops we climb to and we feel great, wherever that pathway leads or twists and turns, it leads to God making all things new. And that is a basic hope for us. That's why even in sadness, anxiety, and depression, David can still sound a note of confidence. Because of who God is and what God has declared, he can lean into the truth of God's unfailing love, even when he doesn't feel. The pain of the situation is still there. The questions are still there. But David can bring into view the great truth of God's commitment to him. God loves David, and David can bank on that, even when David doesn't feel. There are seasons, maybe now, maybe later, when feelings of sadness and anxiety and anger are going to rise and maybe even feel overwhelming, but I want to invite us together in those seasons to be able to remember that alongside our questions, alongside our demands, that we can still declare the gospel of Jesus to ourselves. That we can come back time and time again and declare the grace of God to ourselves, even when we don't feel it. We can declare it to one another when we lose the words to say it ourselves. We can lean on the faith of each other. We can lean on the fact that we are loved and we can bank on that. And to remind ourselves, to remind each other of the unfailing God, uh, love of God for us. Even in the darkest times of our life, we are joined to this truth that God has bound himself for our good, that God has set his love on us. And this, at any moment of your life, is the most important thing about you. It is the thing that's going to be true about you for the longest. Because long after whatever sorrow or anger or pain you're going through right now, long after your struggle with sin, whether your own sins or the sins of other people against you, is over, what remains is the eternal love of God for you. I spoke he's going to make all things new. It is a, a making of all new, things new that, that wins his good creation of the marring of sin. And we will delight for eternity in the reality of God's love for us. So long after our struggles are over, what will remain is love. And that brings me, actually, I got an extra section here I forgot about. The answer of God. The reason I can say all of this is not just to inspire us. I'm not like a coach at halftime that's trying to get us, we can do it. No, I can say, all of this, the answer of faith. 
David can say all of this because God has answered our questions. And his answer to the problem of pain is not silence. God has heard our cries and he has answered them in Jesus. God gave us more than an answer to questions. It's what we want. He gave us himself. And Jesus, the Son of God, God from God, came to earth and he joined himself to a human nature, fully God and fully man, which means that he is perfectly able to communicate who God is to us and perfectly able to represent us before God. God's answer to the pain of our world, the sorrow and the anger that, 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 that comes out of living in a broken world, his answer is the cross of Jesus. Where the darkness and pain of our world was faced, when it was toppled of its ultimacy, where God's light entered into our deepest darkness, and Jesus took on to himself all the wrong that we brought to the table. And in his resurrection, Jesus was vindicated. He showed us that what awaits for us on the other side of our pain, on the other side of even such an enemy as death, is life and victory. Jesus is the embodiment of God's unfailing love for us. Jesus has won the victory, but not everything's been redeemed. I don't think, you know, I said that we feel that. We know that. We still live in a world where so much is still left to be made new, where there's still so much darkness and so much hurt and so much wrong. Right now we live in what... Uh, I like to call the already, but not yet. The victory of Jesus is already secure, but the full reality of it is not yet. It's this in-between time, this tension time. Well, the victory is already secure, but it's not yet seen fully. I've heard it compared to World War II, actually. When the Allied troops landed in Normandy in December 40, 1944, as soon as they were able to establish that beachhead, war was over. It was a foregone conclusion that Germany could not win that because now they were in the fight. I'm not going to get into all of it. They had to fight two fronts. It was a foregone conclusion. As soon as the Allies landed on Normandy and established the beachhead, the war was functionally over. It was decided. But victory in Europe day did not happen until May. Six months later. The outcome of the war was assured. But the full toppling of Hitler and the Nazi power didn't happen until May 45. The end of the war was secure, but the Allied forces still had to free France. They still had to free Belgium. They still had to free all the occupied peoples. They still had to enter into the concentration camps and fully vanquish the evil of the Nazis. The cross and resurrection of Jesus are like D-Day. And we live in the time after that decisive victory, but before Jesus has fully vanquished the darkness and the sin of our world. Right now, Jesus is advancing his victory. That's what the kingdom of God is. He is advancing his free, his his. His victory. He is freeing captives, and then he is sending us as free captives on mission to free other captives. But the fullness of what he has won for us is not yet, but that doesn't make it any less sure or any less guaranteed. 
So, when the lies of the world are loud, when the darkness is overwhelming, when there's still so much wrong here, do not forget that Jesus is alive, his victory is secure, he has landed, and he will not stop until sin and Satan and all the wrong that mars our world is toppled and vanquished completely, and all things are new. And that's our hope. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have won us to yourself in Jesus. That we who were captives, we who in truth were the enemy soldiers, have been sought out by grace and freed, freed to be on mission with you, to offer the freedom of grace to others. So I pray, Lord, that you would uh, remind us of this in times when we don't feel it. That you would help us not to squash our questions down, not to think that we need to minimize our pain to maximize your glory, but rather that we would feel the freedom of dearly loved children who are held at every moment by the love and intention of our Father. And that we can come to you even in the most difficult of times and still hear the good news of your life.